welcome to episode 23 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week inside the Roleplay Studio, I have Sean Hayworth. Many of you may be familiar with Sean as one of the hosts of the excellent podcast This Modern Death, now exclusively available through BitTorrent or your favourite torrent provider. Never fear, though, Sean has a new podcast, Bad Wrong Fun, which he records with his lovely wife, Kristen, and a mystery guest every week. Uh, you may also know Kristen from episode 21 of Penny Red. You can also find Sean on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash S Hayworth. So without further ado, hi there, Sean. How's it going? Do, doing well. How are you, Dan? I'm doing just fine. Uh, a bit of a busy day today, but everything seems to be in order now. Um, hopefully the sound will work out well. I've got a new recorder, but uh, that's boring type technical stuff. So on with the questions. How long have you been a role player? Uh, I have been role playing for 473 years. Actually, about 20 years. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was getting excited there. I thought I might have stumbled upon not only an immortal, but an immortal role player, which must be one of the rarest of rare role players. Uh, yeah, well, I, I imagine if somebody is actually immortal, uh, then they would be a really good role player. I think you're probably right. I think I'd love to be in a game where the GM was was an immortal. They'd have an awful lot of uh, real life experiences they can draw on for uh, for accuracy. Although, what would really suck would be a player who was an immortal who had a really really good memory. Because whenever you're describing any period in history, they'd be like, "No, it wasn't like that. No, it's not like that. No, it's not." Yeah. Like that. So that machine may not be such a good thing. So uh, any immortals out there that are role players and players, top tip, don't be a know-it-all. Nobody likes you when you're like that. <laughs> um, so how did you get started in role-playing, and what did you play first? So I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a conservative little town in Northern California, uh, and in my neighborhood it was kind of weird because uh, I, was, I was the youngest one there, but I was like really good friends with all of the older kids right uh so they they were all uh not not actually role players but they but they knew like what role playing was right uh unfortunately uh most of their parents were very very conservative christians right so we weren't actually allowed to play uh at at the time this was this was in the i don't know mid 80s at this point nice forbidden fruit yeah, yeah. So, so Dungeons and Dragons is out of the question because you know that was the height of the oh my god that game is evil. Right. Uh, so we wound up uh, since since we weren't allowed to get real role playing games, we would make them up. So I actually started out with uh, with these these weird homebrew systems uh, that were just kind of made up on the fly by you know ten and twelve year old kids while I was oh maybe eight at the time. Right. Uh, so, but, but once, once the, once the anti D and D fervor, you know, died down, then of course that was what we played because that was what we knew and what, what was available. Right. And so were they, uh, your parents and the parents of the kids in the neighborhood, were they influenced by that 60 minutes documentary? You know, I, my mother wasn't, uh, but she, my aunt, uh, who was the, the crazy, like evangelical uh was definitely i don't know if it was directly but you know definitely like hearsay and 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 whatnot yes uh, i'm not sure how many like i don't know for a fact how many uh people that that i knew had seen that i certainly hadn't at that age right uh but but yeah i i know that the like the influence of that was definitely incredibly prevalent 
Yes, sure. And and so you started with your homebrew, and then you went to uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and then from Dungeons and Dragons, where did you go? Let's see. We start. We started with Redbox. Uh, well, that's not entirely true. I actually started with the Blue Box, not knowing what uh, what the heck I was doing. Right. Um, and then and then somebody finally like got got smart and realized that the rules for the game wasn't actually in any of the books. Uh, so he, he sorted it, sorted it out. Uh, but then we moved, uh, at, by the time that we kind of moved on, we, we, you know, we did AD and D second edition and played that right. forever. Uh, I got into vampire in 91 ish. Right. Uh, and shadow run at about the same time. Right. And so your experience with, um, with the world of darkness, um, which of the games did you play? Uh, well, we started with Vampire, of course. Uh, I I wound up I bought everything. Like if if, if it was available, I, I ate it up like a small fat boy with Twinkies. I just grabbed everything. Um, I think uh, yeah, I can't think of anything I didn't play. Uh, at least up until the end of the original World of Darkness run, I never right. touched Orpheus. Right. Okay. Well, this is exciting or for me Demon. because uh, over. The uh, the weeks months I suppose it is now. I've been trying to uh, find somebody that actually played Wraith because the way that I read Wraith and the way that I understood it, um, it almost seemed to me like the idea of the shadow was an idea that was was well before its time because it required collaborative storytelling. You know, you required the the player opposite you, or however you uh, happen to organise it, to run your shadow, and to a degree that required a certain amount of, of trust and also a certain amount of maturity amongst players. I never got a chance to play Wraith, although of all the games. That's the one that I I liked the uh, most, and and so did you. Did you get to play Wraith and get to uh, use the shadow and all that sort of thing? I barely got to play Wraith. Uh, I never ran a successful game of it. Uh, I didn't have, you know, it, it came out. Uh, I want to say it was my freshman year of high school, maybe maybe like my late freshman year, right. uh, and I tried to get people to play it. Um, but it just it just didn't catch on. Right. Uh, but I but I think you're absolutely right about it. Uh, the 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 whole idea of of having another player play essentially your nemesis right. uh, was a, was a fantastic idea. Yeah. Um, I think the major failure of that game was that that really cool idea was buried in a system that was uh, basically about punching things in the face. Uh, I, I mean, it, it was World of Darkness, you know, in general has a pretty generic like uh, action adventure uh, game system bolted onto uh, fiction that doesn't actually support it. Right. Uh, or that, that the system doesn't actually support. Um, and it was super apparent in that game uh, to this day. I, I still own the book. Right, I I still have uh, the original soft cover with the glow in the dark nice. bits on the cover. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I've gone through it because I'm actually uh, toying with a with a game design that is uh, very heavily inspired by that. Yes, uh, but it's you know looking looking at it now, uh, I I place I played some really weird games and I'm still not sure what I would do with that with right. Wraith. Yeah, you know. 
Yeah, I, I see what you mean with uh, with it. You know, it, the, the system doesn't really support the story in, in all respects. I, I was worried with with Mage. I like the fact that Mage was so was so loose and so open to interpretation. It sort of required a more mature storyteller and more mature players. But but overall, I, I was reasonably happy with with the system for that. But yes, absolutely, it was kind of a really deep sort of, a, well, at least an attempt at a really deep immersive backstory. But then, as you say, you know, I don't think the mechanics or maybe just role playing at the, at time hadn't matured. Sufficiently to present us to provide a system, or at least the the cornerstones for developing a system that would really support the idea of you know player interactions here like that. There was a lot about individuals um, and the way that they were supposed to work together, but there wasn't a lot of mechanic apart from the shadow that really encouraged that. So, so another swing and a miss for me there. Unfortunately, I'm really keen to try and find somebody who's uh, got a lot of experience with uh, with running Wraith. I think I think I may have somebody lined up, but I'll uh, I'll leave that uh, exciting guest for. Uh, for another day. Okay, so you had um, Well of Darkness and then Shadowrun, and what yeah. did you have after that? Uh, man, after after Shadowrun, uh, I mean, there was there was a smattering of of, of different stuff. We played uh, West End uh, Star Wars, right? Uh, the D six system for a yes. long time. Um, I'm trying to remember what else. Uh, I I had one or two games of of Slay Industries, which was interesting. Uh, <laughs> inverted commas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I didn't get very far into it. It was something that a friend of mine had uh, that that he ran. I think maybe one one shot of it uh, right. once. Um, but yeah, that that was pretty much it. I was I was uh, you know kind of once. Uh, uh, once once I didn't have a D and D group anymore like my friends and i really uh hit hit shadow run pretty hard uh and that was our game of choice for for a long time and then when i got back into gaming uh i don't know 2006 or so uh which was right around when uh shadow run 4 came out right uh that that's kind of what i picked back up right uh although i haven't touched it in years since um yeah, it's it's also the game that I currently flog uh, when I when I find something like some really cool new system. I'm like, can I do Shadowrun with this? Right, uh, and and I have yet to uh, to to pull it off. Right. So in a number of previous episodes, um, I've introduced this idea of the fact that uh, that people have a role playing soulmate. Not everybody's found theirs yet, but would you characterize Shadowrun as your role playing soulmate? I you know I actually wouldn't. Uh, my 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 role playing soulmate uh, is probably Burning Wheel. That is the game. You know, it, there isn't a game that, that uh, delivers for me like Burning Wheel does. Right. Um, I I at one point I even tried to convert uh, Shadowrun to Burning Wheel, and it just didn't work. Right. Uh, but uh, but yeah, but Shadowrun's kind of like it's the setting that I always wanted wanted to do. Right. Uh, because I am such a child of the '80s, and I really wanted, you know, awesome giant hair and and cyber decks plugged into my head. Right, sure. Uh, but, <laughs> who who doesn't? Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> you know, who who doesn't want to be Johnny Mnemonic only better? Right. Because uh, I mean, yeah, that was a terrible movie. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the, the the setting is awesome, but the system was a. Com- I, I used to think it was cool, but now 
uh, I want to bang my head into the floor every time I open the book. Right. Uh, but yeah, d- definitely Burning Wheel is is my go to uh, my go to system. Right. Anymore. A lot of the guys that had the that were in the best shape. Um, were the guys that played Shadowrun because it seemed to me that it required you to each have a backpack full of hard-covered books in order to play it. Did, did you get everything? Uh, I did not get everything. I had a lot of stuff, um, but but I, I did not get everything. Uh, and and by the time uh, you know, I, I started really picking up the books when when four came out, right? Uh, because by then I was you know financially independent, although fairly poor when it came out. Right. Uh, but, but they were also releasing everything as PDFs. Right. Uh, so, uh, with, you know, I, I had the, the one big hardcover and then a hard drive full of, of, uh, of purchased PDFs right. uh, that if I really needed to, I would, I would print out. Like I had, I still have a printout of Arsenal, right. I think, uh, because who doesn't need a whole, you know, 200 page book of guns well exactly i mean it's crazy i know yeah. I, I carry on with me at all times um so after you finished with uh with shadow and all that is that you uh you move from shadow run on to other games because this trajectory obviously finishes for the most part with uh with burning wheel um what was the first sort of indie games you got into uh you know burning wheel was actually the uh, well uh i don't know if that's accurate uh I I think my my very first uh, taste of indie games uh, was a it was Dogs in the Vineyard, but it wasn't standard Dogs right. in the Vineyard, okay. uh, which I think is actually more common uh, than than should be the case because uh, Dogs in the Vineyard is a fantastic game. Yes, uh, but uh, there was a, there was a gentleman playing uh, at a or running it at a local con. Right, uh, the, I I think I. Uh, got signed up for just kind of randomly, right? Uh, and I had no idea what to expect. Uh, but we we played uh, essentially like a consulting firm coming into a corporation to uh, to to sort out all of their uh, you know employees who were you know trying to to, to build their own little empires in there sure. and, uh, and whatnot. And it, it worked really well, like. Like having played that and then gone back and and looked at at dogs in the vineyard, it was it was a fantastic hack, right? Of it, and it was it was amazingly uh, engaging, right? Uh, but it was it was uh, that was I think the first the first indie game that, that I played, and then the second was, had to have been Wilderness of Mirrors. Right, I'm not familiar with that game. What's Wilderness of Mirrors? Uh, Wilderness of Mirrors is this uh, cool little spy game that John Wick. Uh, wrote um, and I don't think he ever actually published it uh, or if he did it was very very small runs Uh, I think you can still buy it if you if you email him uh, and and you know ask for it and then send him five bucks over PayPal right Uh, but it's uh, you you play you play super spies basically Uh, everybody gets to be James Bond in this in this and uh you know, one person is like the uh, kind of the the brains of the operation, and there's a hitman and a disguise guy and a gadget guy. Right. Uh, and in in uh, true John Wick fashion, you spend uh, the the GM comes comes up with kind of the premise, right. like you know, the super weapon is being held in the 
in the uh, villain's volcano lair. Right. Um, and then the the players actually get to sit down after after creating their characters, which takes all of like ten minutes. Right. Uh, and and uh, kind of kind of play out the the info dump. Uh, right. that then becomes the adventure. Right. Uh, so so the, the players get to kind of go around and be like, oh yeah, and there's, you know, automated laser cannons guarder, guarding the entrance. And the GM goes, oh, I see that there are automated laser cannons. Right. Uh, and the longer that you take to do that, the more resources that the game master garners uh, to mess with you. Right. Uh, and then the, the actual dice mechanics are... Uh, uh, very not exactly past the stick, but it's it's role for narrative control. Sure. Uh, so if you if you you know roll and do well, you get to narrate uh, generally your success, but whatever you want to happen. Right. Uh, and then as as you kind of go down in the results, it's it's the GM gets say uh, you know gets to add something, or you get to add something after the GM does, or the GM. Uh, you know, basically throws you to the wolves. Right. And that's an interesting idea that the more details you give, uh, the more sort of, um, the more, inf- the more ammunition that the, the storyteller gets, because I guess ultimately, um, if your goal was to quote unquote, win, you'd say it's really strange because the supervillain is actually not at the lair at the moment and he hasn't prepared any sort of defenses and you walk in and you grab the, the super weapon and that, that that's the end of it. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because I think that sometimes, uh, uh, you can, as a player, you can lose sight of the fact that if it's not for the obstacles, then there is no game, and it's overcoming the obstacles that that make things interesting. And and if you keep that in mind, for people that are perhaps aren't so familiar with indie games, this idea of bringing up difficulties, whether they're inspired by other players or by the GM, this, these extra difficulties actually are what make the game more fun. Because if there are no difficulties, there's there's really no game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I agree with you one hundred percent. I'd go I'd go farther. Uh, in at least in my experience, as soon as you start turning over uh, those kinds of responsibilities to to the rest of the players, um, you know, and it's not solely incumbent on the GM to to come up with opposition for you, uh, your your buy in shoots through the roof. Yeah, uh, and and because players are way more interested with uh, stuff that they get to come up with that is very cool. Uh, than stuff that you came up with because you think it's cool, and since you think it's cool, they should think it's cool. Right. Uh, so yeah, that was that was really like the first uh, the first taste of that that I'd gotten. Um, and like I said, it's it's a really simple game, but but that uh, that kind of kind of uh, attitude is, has uh, spilled over into really the rest of of my gaming. Like that's when I started really getting into indie games. Right. And what do you suppose uh, the definition of indie games uh, really is? Because um, for the, for the most part, at least in descriptions that I've heard and and sort of deciphering it through my own experience, it seems that the critical part of um, an indie game is not necessarily that it's independently produced, although I suspect that that's how that, how it started out, but that independent games or indie games, there is that real 
a real emphasis on collaborative storytelling and not so much on the mechanic and the authoritarian idea of the GM? Uh, I, I'm not sure that's entirely true. Uh, Burning Wheel is very GM heavy. Like it's very, uh, it's, it's traditional in its setup. Uh, you know, this is, this is, this is kind of a, a, it's, it's one of those weird sticking points for me. Uh, right. Well, let me go back to your, your original question. Oh, absolutely. I'm just throwing that. I'm just throwing the thesis out there. I've never really thought about it or formulated an idea until I was, until I was talking about it right then, because I've never stopped to think, you know, what does indie game actually mean? I know that indie is short for independent, but that doesn't necessarily capture the, the zeitgeist, if you like, of what indie games are. No, no. And you're, you're absolutely right. And I, you I, I really think of it as a shorthand. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a shorthand for, uh, that, that, you know, catches, you know, games that are, that are legitimately small press, like, you know, a couple of guys decide to write something and then, and then go ahead and publish it and put it out. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be, uh, a, a super hippie, like past the stick, you know, storytelling game. Right. Um, you know, stuff like, uh, like fate is still, you know, an independent game, although it's probably the largest, uh, largest press at this point. Right. Uh, but I, I still place it, you know, firmly in the, in the quote unquote indie camp. Right. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that, that indie by itself has a, a good definition. Uh, it, it kind of catches everything that's not, uh, D and D white wolf or maybe rifts. Right. Maybe Shadowrun. Uh, Green Ronin? I don't know. Uh, I don't really follow Green Ronin. Um, I, is it like Green Ronin or... Mutants or, and Masterminds, that type of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like. I don't know. Uh, they, they definitely, uh, if I remember right, and I've never played Mutants and Masterminds, so, you know, it's entirely possible that I'm wrong. Uh, but, but my... My very limited understanding is that it's uh, it's got a very traditional feel. So so maybe you're right in in the the sense that indie has kind of come to mean games that do not play or feel like the games that you grew up with. Right. Okay, I think I think that uh, is at least a good starting point for the uh, for the conversation. Perhaps I'll consider it, uh, consider it and then continue it with another with another person at a later date. So, what uh, do you play now? I know that you play uh, Burning Wheel, but are there any other games that you're into right now? Uh, man, uh, really, uh, Burning Wheel is what I what I run in general. Um, I I have a Friday group that is uh, we we meet fairly. Sp- well, we meet regularly, but play sporadically. Right. Uh, but we're st- we're starting up uh, an Apocalypse World game, right? Uh, which is an amazing game that if you don't own it, you should. Right. <clears throat> um, I there's there's a lot of games that I want to play that are difficult to find groups for or or sell. Uh, Free market is is kind of my my. Like the 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 game that I wish everybody was as into as I am, uh, right? But uh, but yeah, really, uh, Burning Wheel, Burning Empires. We I just uh, just got done with a, a a somewhat aborted attempt at that game. Um, 
but yeah, uh, burning wheel is what, what I tend to run and what people come to me to have run for them. So, right. Well, it sounds like you and uh, Jen Dixon from episode 17 will get on because, uh, she really loves apocalypse world, but, uh, she also has yet to find a game of, uh, free market, uh, to play with somebody. She loves it, but she can't get anybody to play it. So, so yeah, check out, um, you're to look her up. And, uh, if you're interested in, um, uh, sex on the plains in terms of plant botany, you may get on just like a house on fire. But anyway, there's, uh, there's an interesting um, connection there. Maybe I'm not sure if you've dis- if uh, role playing games. Uh, this is just an idea I'm formulating now. Do you suppose that role playing games could be like music? Because it's interesting that you should say that you really love Apocalypse World and you like Free Market uh, for whatever reason. Um, and that's and it just so happens that uh, I'm editing episode 17 uh, as we record this. But um, the and Jen said that she loves free market but can't get somebody to play and you've got the same experience with free market and she really loves apocalypse world could it be that role-playing games are a little bit like music if you like this kind of music then maybe you might you know yeah i i I think absolutely and i think uh you know i incidentally i'm i'm also uh not not a great musician but i am a musician uh and, and I think that uh that i like certain games for the same reason that i like certain music it it uh, it just kind of hits uh, hits a certain nerve, uh, and it's not always the same. Uh, you know, it. A lot of people like to listen to the you know primarily one kind of music. Like somebody may be a hip hop fan or or a metal fan or whatever. Right. Uh, but there's there's always those like odd little things that you hear, and you're like, oh. Well, that's really cool too, and it may not be an entire genre, but like one thing in a genre, right? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm like that myself when it comes to music. I'm I wouldn't characterize myself as a, characterize myself as a musician. I can play the guitar, but I don't play with anybody or for anybody apart from my three year old who mostly likes to try and play the strings when I'm playing them anyway. But um, in terms of music, I'm I'm eclectic, uh, and I don't like everything from any particular genre but there's just like you say you know there's music is so subjective that it just has to be something about it that that tickles your fancy and and that's that's what you love about it and it also goes a little bit to the idea um that you know like people uh like to love the role-playing games games that they're into and not uh, across the board but a lot of people also like to not like the role-playing games that other people are into they somehow feel that they're on a, a moral high ground if they you know really love some particular type of game or or some you know setting or, or whatever it might happen to be and and i think that role-playing games you know are a lot like music and there's just no knowing exactly what you're going to like or what's going to tickle your fancy but there's no way to empirically say that such and such a game is better than such and such another game and have you experienced this role-playing snobbery yourself over the years um to an extent uh i uh you know i'm uh I think that there are some games that you can objectively categorize as, as bad. Not not that <laughs> yeah. not that people. I mean, the unholy you know, triumvirate, right? Like fatal and uh, yeah, white 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 war. I forget white war something or other. And then there's that there's that strange one that wasn't actually supposed to be a game, but some guy gathered up all the posts and stuck them together and and made it into a game, which I can't remember the name of. But but yes, aside from those ones that are obviously bad. Yeah, right. Um, you know, I, and I think. Uh, I think a lot of a lot of those are are kind of the the heartbreaker thing where where uh, you know people go through and try and fix a game that they that they grew up with. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a lot of this is my attempt to fix D and D. Only it doesn't make it any better. It just man, I, I don't even know what it does. It just it just doesn't make make it better. Right. Uh, and are you specifically referring there to sort of the old school renaissance that's going on currently, or is there, is there some particular um, aspect of sort of reimagining that uh, you're targeting here? Yeah, I, I think it's it's mostly the the uh, generally anytime people get obsessed with with making something more X, more realistic, or more uh, you know more deadly, or you know making it really more anything instead of. Uh, attempting to, to pare things down to the core of what made it cool in the first place and emphasize that, right? Uh, you know, that's that's where the failing is. Uh, right. I've seen I've seen some of the some of the OSR stuff is is actually really cool. I hear great things about uh, Legend of the Flame Princess. Uh, I need to I need to play that. Right. Um, I've I've been paying attention to uh, uh, Luke Crane and Jared Sorensen um, and some some other folks in their circle. Uh, have actually actually been playing the uh, the 1981 uh, Moldve edition of Basic D and D, right? Yep. Uh, which which has uh, some some really cool rules in it that turns it from a you know stomp monsters game to a like legitimate dungeon exploration game, right? Uh, I'm going back through D and D Second Edition uh, and kind of going and and trying to play it by the uh by the standard rules as written right uh which i you know having gone back through the books i'm pretty sure i never did as a teenager right uh and so i'm running a, a campaign of that that this this summer uh with with a small group of people right um and so yeah i don't i don't think it's it's that the games are are old that makes them that makes them bad or even that they they are bad. It's kind of, kind of what people have seen that was wrong with them, and you know they they missed the point. Right. Yeah, they've tried to fix something that wasn't broken and, and created a broken game in the process. Yeah, exactly. So another thing that I know that you're uh, into, and perhaps you could shed a bit of light on for me, is uh, gaming over G plus. I've spoken with a, with a couple of people about it, but you're the GM of a G plus game and or a Google Hangouts game, I should say. Um, how does that? To work for you as a GM, what sort of advice might you have for somebody that wants to run a game of, I don't know, say free market um, in um, sort of a Google Hangout type environment, just some technical stuff and some things to look out for? Yeah, so uh, that's that's actually very interesting. Um, I The reason that I'd, I'd given you my, my uh, YouTube page is because we've actually started live streaming uh, our, our weekly Burning Wheel game right. uh, over uh, over Google Plus Hangouts, um, really, it works really well. I mean, a lot of people already run games, you know, over Skype or uh, Inferno.net, which is also a great virtual tabletop. Uh, for for Google Plus, uh, I guess the the big thing is is uh, you want to keep uh, uh, anything that's that's shared. Uh, Google Docs are great for so that everybody can reference them uh, as as you play. Right. Uh, there's there's a couple of of, uh, of virtual tabletop apps uh, for Google Plus now. Uh, one of them is I want to say it's called RPG 
Forge. I can't remember if that's if that's the name of it mm, or not. Familiar, but, but maybe. Uh, yeah, which which I actually haven't gotten a chance to to try out uh, very extensively yet. I played with it a little bit, right? Um, but generally, like I said, I run Burning Wheels, so there's no, you know, no minis to push around or sure. or much in the way of visual aids. Um, but it does support, uh, or at least is in the process of of, of being able to support uh, decks of cards and and multiple decks of cards. Sure. Uh, I have actually run free market once online. Right. Uh, it was a little bit cumbersome because basically you have to, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the game at all. Uh, I, don't, I don't know a lot about it other than what Jen was talking about in episode 17. <clears throat> uh, so, so it's a card based game, right? right. Uh, instead of rolling dice, you have, you have each player has a deck of cards and then there's a deck of cards uh, in the center that, that everybody has access to. Um, so, what you wind up doing is you either have to own the game to have the cards or tell people how to build a deck of, of free market cards. Right. Uh, and, uh, when, when we did it, we just, uh, dealt to ourselves for, for free market specifically, you, you sort of have to assign, uh, one person to be in charge of, of, uh, of the, the shared technology deck. Um, and, uh, we, when I did it, we, you know, draw and then just post up what what our current draw was. Right. Uh, so you know, there's there's only I think five types of cards in the game. Uh, so we just you know, if if I drew a free market and a gene line card, I would put an F and a G next to each other. Right. Um, so it, it worked pretty well. I mean, it it lost a lot of the 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 visceral feeling of playing the game uh, sure. because those sorts of you know the the props, the 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 visual aspect of playing, uh, really helps to set the mood, especially sure. in that game. Sure, um, but it's it works uh, if if you're if you're desperate enough, like me, to play. Well, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, that's right. It's better better than not getting to play free market at all. So you played a bit of free market. You play. Um you now play your Burning Wheel online, and and what was the, what's the ideal number of, of people for a game of Burning Wheel? Uh, if you're going to play it online, or in fact, any role playing you've got experience with, uh, five people. Uh, that that's the perfect number, and that includes the GM because right. the GM is really just a player with with specific responsibilities. Right. Um. But yeah, I, I find uh, having a GM and four four players. Uh, gives you uh, a, a bit of freedom when it comes to uh, having, you know, somebody who maybe can't make it or whatnot. Right. Uh, and this, this may be peculiar to me. Um, I find jamming for one or two people to be just too intimate for me to deal with. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, three people is great. You, you can, uh, you can bounce back and forth between three people yep. and, and have, uh, but if one person can't make it, then it kind of means that nobody gets to play. If you yes. have four people, generally one person isn't going to be able to make it, and then you still have three to play with. Right, yeah. They get that dynamics that you don't get when you've got two. And like you say, when it becomes two people, it's much more intimate, and the amount of uh, on time is uh, is far greater than, than if you've got those you've got those three people and you've got that dynamic going on. And right. while, while we're on the, the subject there, I've, I've brought it up a couple of times, but I, I've run a couple of buddy cop games uh, through Project using Project Twilight about 
15 years ago now. And uh, it worked out really well. But I did find from time to time that um, in some scenes, I was playing two NPCs and I was having a conversation with myself in these two different roles while the, while the player sort of watched on, which which was strange. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? Uh, yeah, I, I actively try to avoid that. Uh, <laughs> if, I mean, sometimes it's, it's unavoidable. Right, you know? sure. I, I, you, you have scenes where, you know, you you have you know the 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 king and his his cream of worm tongue character whispering in his ear right um, but but yeah like I I hate having NPCs talking to each other while the while the characters sit there and, and watch me <laughs> dump info that's uh, right yeah yeah I I, I generally uh, if I'm going to be in that situation um, I try and always make NPCs want something from the players right uh so instead of talking amongst themselves you know they're you know they have to interact and even if a second one's going to interject uh then then it's always one npc bouncing off the pc right even if there are two npcs there right yeah so you could try and find a way to pass it off there then right right and and you can you can uh you know it's it's easier to you know if if two npcs are arguing especially to be able to turn to a pc and you know, say, tell him he's wrong. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and put the, put the responsibility of, of role playing squarely on their shoulders. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I think people have got a pretty good idea where you're uh, coming from and, and where you're at right now. So on with the, uh, with the inside the role play studio uh, questions, what's your favorite book or supplement? And it doesn't necessarily have to be the game that you play now, but just a book that's a constant joy. And you, know, you go back to it from time to time where you love the art and it, or it reminds you of when you first started role playing or something, you just got a real soft spot for you. If it's something you don't necessarily use currently. Uh, I, there, there's actually two of them. Um, one uh, is is uh, uh, the Adventure Burner, uh, and granted, I'm a Burning Wheel fanboy, so that's kind of like asking, you know, what what's your favorite computer, Apple fan? Uh, but <laughs> sure, I'll allow. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the, the reason I like it is because uh, it's it's mostly a book of commentary on play, right? Uh, so, with with the exception of these sections that are very specifically about you know, burning wheel mechanics and, and doing, doing burning wheelie stuff. Uh, there's a lot of just really good advice for playing role-playing games in general, uh, in ways to, to get the most out of them. Right. Uh, so, you know, even if you're not a burning wheel player, it's worth getting, uh, because I think the advice in there will make any, any game a better game. Right. Uh, the other one, uh, I would have to say is probably Wraith. Uh, right. You, it's 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 almost unplayable uh, as far as I'm concerned. Right. I, I'm, I may be wrong, but yeah, it's it's really like the, the game itself isn't great. Uh, but man, does that book have so much flavor in it? Hmm. Uh, you know, just just the artwork and and the feel of it, and you know. Uh, and the glow in the dark cover too, right? Well, yeah, that. That, I, that that thing actually literally scared me one night. Yeah, yeah. I, I woke up and I'm like, "Why is that book looking at me?" Uh, and I got up and was like, "Oh, it's because there's glowy bits that I didn't realize were on here." Right. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, you know, as as an artifact, it's a great uh, it's it's a 
great book. Yeah, I love that book. I love that book too. I got the second edition too, the hard-covered version, but it didn't have the glowing cover, so I couldn't bring myself to sell off my uh, my first edition. But yeah, I, I love that book too. It's only it's a dis, it's just a very close second to Project Twilight, but yeah, it's a, certainly a, a great book. So uh, going to the flip side of that now. If you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? It doesn't necessarily mean you think that it's badly written. It could just be because it's wronged you in some random way or you know it came along at a time in your life where something bad was happening. You, just always associate, you always associate it with that or, or just something about it just makes you break the fourth wall every time you see it. Like, oh, that doesn't work because... And you just can't stomach it for whatever reason. Uh, yeah, I, I have, I have a, a personal and deep-seated hatred towards the uh, Serenity role-playing game. Right. Uh, I've I've been on record uh, referring to that game as an abortion, uh, <laughs> which which is kind of sad because because Cam Banks from from Margaret Wise Productions, uh, I, I don't know anybody else from there, and I've I've only dealt with Cam, you know, on, online through Twitter and and whatnot. Right. But man, he's a great guy. Like he is a really stand up, really uh, really smart, uh, good good designer. But man, that game. I don't want to say that it's terrible. Uh, it's because it's not, uh, and right. that's kind of the problem with it. You know, terrible games you can look at and be like, "Wow, that's uh, that's an interesting thing you did there." Uh, <laughs> but, you, but you certainly did a thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I don't like it. <laughs> uh, you know, my my problem with it was that it was it, it's it's a boring system. Like oh. it doesn't it doesn't do anything that other systems don't do. Uh, in a better way, right? Um, and I mean, it's it's not particularly complicated, so I can kind of see the appeal in that. But Savage Worlds would have done it just as well. Uh, but but it was a you know it was an action adventure system, and that kind of I, I always thought missed the point of what uh, what Serenity and Firefly were, right? Um, I, and I'm. I know that their their new stuff. Uh, I have heard nothing but good things about about Marvel and uh, and uh, Smallville and 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 some of the other stuff that that, that they've come out with more recently. Right. Uh, so so you know I don't I don't want to be you know everybody being like oh Sean hates Margaret Wise Productions. Uh, I just really did not like that that game, and it could be that you know I was a fan of the Firefly series and. Right. Uh, and so seeing it get that treatment hurt me inside. Right. Could, do you think that the um, have you recovered, or are you still do you still wake up crying sometimes? Uh, you know, sometimes I'll find myself you know curled in a fetal position, you know, <laughs> you know, crying for wash. But uh, but for the most part, yeah, I've, I've recovered, especially after after their their newer stuff, which by all accounts uh, is is fantastic, and I really need to make time to to play. Right. Uh, yeah, that's the uh, is it Octane or what's it called? Uh, was um, Lenny oh, was Cor- talking about it, episode sixteen. Uh, Cortex Plus, yes, is their their new system, right? Cortex was their old one, but Cortex Plus is their their new stuff, right? And is that the engine for those those new games, or is it a separate engine for all of them? Uh, it, it's 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 uh, as far as I know, it's it's the engine that they they use. It's kind of their in house thing, much like Evil Hat's in house thing is is Fate. Right. Uh, if, if you if you ignore, don't rest your head. Right. Uh, but uh, but yeah. Um, from what I understand, and like I said, I have not gotten a chance to to play to play that stuff. Uh, but it's very Fate E. Uh, 
that that same uh, they're really designed to emulate a genre sure. uh, or or a particular property, uh, which I, I think if they went back and made a Firefly or Serenity game using Cortex Plus, it would probably be awesome. And if they're listening, uh, guys, please. <laughs> <laughs> Please, please save me from myself here. The um, the so you talked a bit about the Marvel game and then also uh, Serenity and and you know Firefly um, games. Do you think that those types of games draw new people to the hobby, or do you think it just satisfies a desire within the hobby for people to play those types of games? Uh, yes, um, <laughs> I uh, I, th- I think Marvel especially. Uh, from from everybody that all the buzz that I've heard and and from uh, from the you know what I've what I've heard people talking about uh, it's set up in a in a in a way that comic book fans would like uh, because it is very much playing not only playing comic book characters uh, but uh, if if I'm if I'm correct it's uh, you actually play comic book storylines like there might be an event book for secret wars or uh i'm not a huge comics guy so i don't i don't know everything you know infinity gauntlet stuff or 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 what um but yeah i think i think that that certainly uh that certainly is is a good way of drawing in uh players uh, that, that are already fans of the material that it's based on. Right. And do you, I mean, I'm not a big uh, comic book guy at all. Like uh, Watchmen is probably the only, you know, American comic book that I ever sort of sought out the episodes of. I read a lot of 2000 AD, um, you know, Judge Dredd and Halo Jones and uh, Bix Barton and those type of guys. But um, do they advertise in comic books for the role-playing game? Because the, the sort of genesis of that question was this idea of, you know, if we want to draw more people into the hobby, then the only way, unless you've got a seed guy, you know, like somebody who gets five friends that they happen to know, like say comic books, and they say, "Let's play this Marvel game," um, then are they, are they advertising those books in comics? Or um, I mean, they're not, there's no advertising for it on television. I don't even know the last time I saw a role playing game ad, ad, televised, uh, an advertisement uh, televised for it. Yeah, me either. Um- you know, I don't know. I like I said, I'm not a. I don't really buy comics. Uh, I tend to buy trade paperbacks when a full series is out. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I would hope so, but I have a feeling that most of uh, most of the ads in comics these days seem to be in house. You know, if you if you buy one of the new fifty two, you're going to see one of the other fifty one comics right. advertised in there. Right. Uh, Plus the advertisements for Sea Monkeys and. Uh George Atlas growing your muscles, right? Right, and and X-ray glasses, of, of course, of course, of, X-ray, yeah. of course. Uh, but uh, you know, I I I don't know. I've never asked if uh, I, I imagine that 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 could be tricky, since you know Margaret Wise basically has to has to pay for would have to pay for the ad space. I mean, right. I would think, um, and I know that they're not a big company. I don't know if uh, if you know how much ad space in comics is is valued at these days uh i would hope that that they would uh that they would advertise in that um i think that uh any any sensible comic book shop owner 
would uh, put the Marvel RPG out front. Right. Uh, I mean, the, there's there's almost no no better way of advertising a product than to put it in front of people so they can pick it up and, and look at it and read it. Sure. Uh, you know, I I went to a comic book shop recently and saw, you know, it, it wasn't exactly prominently displayed like, oh, check this out. But it was, you know, it was in the in the front room, not not you know stuffed in the the role playing ghetto in the back, right? Uh, amongst the the second edition books, uh, you know, it was it was out out front like with the Marvel comics, right? Uh, which I think is probably the best place. I mean that you know gamers are going to seek out games, yes. comic book fans may not i mean there's probably a lot of crossover but uh yeah i i think i think it being out there and having people able to to pick it up and be like oh what is this thing and right. flip through it and you know see how cool it is uh probably probably the best way of advertising right so talking about new games and wish lists for margaret weiss games are there any games or supplements that you're particularly looking forward to uh, aside from whatever Luke Crane puts out that I will buy slide unseen. That's right. Yes. Apart from that. Ah, oh, man. Um, you know, I, I really haven't been, been keeping up on the, the, the newest stuff coming out. Right. Uh, although, uh, I know the, the Paranet papers are supposed to be coming from evil hat, right. uh, which is, uh, the supplement for, for the Dresden files, right. RPG, right. uh, which I will definitely pick up. Um, oh, and uh, don't hack this game. Also from Evil Hat, right? I am I am looking forward to because Don't Rest Your Head is a fantastic. Uh, not only is it a fantastic game in its own right, but it's got a really really cool, elegant little system, right? Um, and I am super interested in seeing what people do with it, right? And just going back to Luke Crane. Um uh, for a moment, uh, have you heard anything uh, more than sort of whispers in terms of what he is bringing out to next? Uh, no, he's he's very he's very cagey with uh, with what he's designing. Uh, I, I know just from lurking on his forums and, and paying attention to to what he says on on podcasts and whatnot uh, that Burning Wheel headquarters has three games that they're working on right now. Right. Uh, <clears throat> normally, uh, every summer. They, they release something new. Right. Uh, and this is the first year that, uh, since I've been a fan of the of, of his stuff, uh, that nothing is getting released right. for the summer. Right. Um, which uh, is, is disappointing in the fact that I can't hand him, you know, my between $25 and $100. Right. That uh, <laughs> must but really on, hurt. <laughs> it, it does. It does. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, it means that he's he's putting uh, you know putting the effort into making whatever it is that he's working on really really good, right? Uh, sure. And I I think his track record speaks for himself. I mean, there, there's plenty of people that don't like what he does, uh, but I don't think that anybody can can legitimately say he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, you know, he puts out great games that aren't everybody's game. Sure, so. sure. So you'll have extra money for uh, Sea Monkeys and X-ray Specs this summer then. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That that twenty five bucks may go to Margaret Wise this year, <laughs> right? Um, so, uh, if you could only be a GM or a player, which would you choose and why? Uh, I think GM. Uh, again, that's one of those those tricky things because I, I I I always kind of bristle at the the GM player split these days. Sure, absolutely. Uh, that's blue, certainly. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it, it has. Uh, but I am way more comfortable uh, on the on this side of of, of uh, throwing things at people, um, and and kind of refereeing rules uh, than I am as a player. Uh, which probably means that I need to be a player more to be better at it. But I but I tend to be much much more shy as a player than I am as a game master. Right. So so being a GM is definitely in my comfort zone. Uh, even even with games that I'm not super familiar with, uh, I'll you know I feel better kind of being in control. Not not in control of it in the in the sense that you know you're playing my game and I'm going to make you dance to my evil you know I don't know calliope music or whatever. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> that is fun though. It is it is fun to make, to make a monkey <laughs> dance <stand>. players dance. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no it. Really like like having I I function better from that that bigger picture view right uh, of the game uh, so so yeah that's that's definitely my comfort zone and and given the the choice I will run games rather than play them right so when you are a GM what sort of preparation do you do for for a regular game oh that's a terrible question I'm the laziest GM ever uh, <clears throat> I don't know. Lenny Balsera reckons he's the laziest GM ever. I don't. That might be an interesting uh, one to try to get to the bottom of it. What makes you a lazy GM particularly? Uh, part of it is is my game selection. I uh, even if it's not Burning Wheel, I tend to play games that, that you know the prep is kind of done uh, done there at the table, and and you can just kind of pick up and go. Right. Um, <clears throat> But but generally, like looking at what's already on the player, like the character sheets, uh, is going to tell you what the players are interested in. Yes, uh, and then I just do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I pretty much do whatever they they want, and then make it hard to you know for them to 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 achieve it. Right. Yeah. I'm. I was joking to a degree about the about being the, being the laziest because I think that. Um, in terms of preparation, a lot of the, I think as a GM, it's not, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's lazy, I'd say it's just good practice to leave your story sufficiently loose so that when you get a look at what those players are actually like, you can incorporate their ideas and what they're interested in into your uh, story. You know, really, the, the player should mold what's going to happen during during a session. And so spending a whole bunch of time preparing stuff that, in fact, nobody may be organically interested in is is not time well spent but but having said that and i put the same question to uh to lenny what do you do in terms of setting though because presumably you don't roll up and say we're going to play what today guys and they say we want to be um uh dinosaur hunters and we want to pretend to be cavemen and you know like i mean even or, or something like that like how much preparation do you do for setting for example uh, so, so uh, that's actually one of my favorite parts. Like, I love the whole world building thing, right? Uh, in in games, um, but uh, from from playing Burning Wheel, like I've kind of expanded this to uh, to almost everything that I play now. Uh, really, uh, from the point of the GM, I usually come up with a pitch or two. You know, uh, how would you guys feel about about you know a game where you know, it's it's Game of Thrones, but you're on the other side. You right. Know, you're you're one of the Lannisters, or or something like that. And right. uh, 
you know, from there, you know, you, you, you figure out what kind of game people are interested in playing. Right. Um, and then I generally, uh, you know, I, I, I spend the, the first kind of, uh, kind of session, uh, you know, sitting down with the players and we figure out like kind of the, the world that we're playing in, in broad strokes, mm-hmm. uh, not, not any details, just, you know, you know, is, is this a kingdom, uh, or a duchy or what? Okay. Who's, who's in charge? Uh, what's this guy's name? What's his deal? What does he want? Uh, and once we kind of have a good sketch of that, uh, by that time, players usually have an idea what kind of characters they want to play. Right. Um, and then uh, the the details of, you know, we, you come up with a situation like, okay, this big thing just happened. Uh, you know, somebody's shown up with word that, you know, there's there's one more, uh, one heir to the throne that, that's been discovered still alive. Right. After the rest of them have gotten killed, and and you guys are sent off to find it, right? Uh, you know, and at that point, you can really just just let it roll, and then all of the details are filled in during actual play, right? Uh, so so the hard part is is managing to maintain, you know, keeping those details, uh, uh, you know, listed or or, yes. um, but. It's a whole lot easier to do that because you only have to do a few of them at a time, right? Than having like a huge setting that that uh, people may or may not be familiar with, right? Uh, and then having to to feed that information. Like I would I would hate to run a Forgotten Realms game this these days, right? Because uh, that, that's it's an awesome setting, uh, but you have to be a fan of it to know already, right? Uh, and, and otherwise, if you, you know, if you don't know anything about it, you kind of go, huh, I don't know what that word you just said means right. uh, or the significance of this particular character. Uh, right. So it, I find it way better to uh, to actually, you know, broad strokes at the beginning, come up with details and then let uh, let the play happen organically. Uh, right. Along with that whole um sort of letting the organ- the story develop organically. Um, one of the things that uh, that Lenny and I were discussing um, was that you... One of the... I mean, people say they don't do much preparation, but in actuality, if you don't do much preparation, when it comes to the game, one of the most important things for you to do, and it is a lot of work, is maintaining that consistency from, from week to week. And, and you alluded to it there. You know, you said you make sure that you, you keep um, all, your, all your ducks in a row. Because if you agree on a truth with the players, then you must maintain that truth throughout unless it slowly morphs over time. And so even though you don't put a lot of preparation in up front in terms of exactly what's going to happen in the story, I suspect that after each game session, if if you're anything like me, even though the story is not set in stone, you spend an awful lot of time afterwards making sure you note down as many of the details and as many of those sort of truths that have crystallized um, as, as possible in order to maintain that consistency and give the players the idea that although they're driving the story forward and they are sort of, um, determining the path that it will follow you know there are actually some universal truths which are uh, which they have to bang up against in order to progress the story is that is that accurate for you also uh yeah i i think so to uh, to an extent anyway i think that there's uh there's a certain amount of uh, logical consistency that it's going to come from uh you know the 
setting expectations at the beginning of, of the game. Like if, if you set up that, you know, there aren't a whole bunch of wizards in the world and suddenly there's everybody and their brother is a wizard, yes. uh, then people are, you know, the players are going to notice. Of course. Uh, which, which means one of two things. Either that is a thing, like suddenly there's way more than we expected. What's going on? Uh, or, or you've screwed up. In that case, your players, I, at least I feel like uh, good players will remind you. Uh, <laughs> right, that, of course, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's probably the most valuable uh, resource that that anybody has is the rest of the people at their table. Oh yeah, uh, because everybody's going to remember something different, yes. especially if if uh, you know if you're coming up with details uh, during during play uh, yes. through uses of skills or or whatever, mm. um, then the players that have succeeded or failed those roles uh, that are kind of the, it makes them take ownership of them and yes. they will tend to remember that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, you know, if, if uh, we had, we actually had a situation in, in one of our games where uh, uh, somebody, uh, one of the players made, uh, I can't remember. It was a, like a noble wise role or something right. uh, to that effect to, to uh, make it a, a, a custom that if you, if you eat the food that a host provides you, you are then, uh, each, each, the the hosting guests are are bound by certain certain rules of hospitality. So right. if you refuse food, uh, then you have a whole lot of leeway to to uh, behave in different right uh, in different ways. Sure. Um, so you know that that of course then becomes oh that is a thing in this this setting now that's right. something that's true, uh, right. and and that player uh, tends to remember that more often than. I do as the GM, right? Uh, which which is, in my opinion, great. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, because sure. it, because it's really easy to be like, oh no, you're right. That's that's true. You you succeeded on that role. That's a that's a true thing. And then you uh, kind of go back and and not not exactly retcon, but you know, it's generally something that comes up in the right. You know, I've just said this thing that is you know patently wrong. Somebody's reminded me, okay, yeah. that's not what happened. Sure. This other thing happened. Right, yeah. I mean, that requires a certain amount of maturity with your players, right? And a certain amount of comfort with them to, to, to really get that feeling that you are actually, you know, collaborating and telling a, to telling a great story, right? So that uh, being flexible uh, and allowing players to have that power for describing certain things or, or you know, being the arbiter. Of, of certain truths certainly takes a little bit of pressure off you as the GM, but I also think it adds a certain element to the uh, the collaborative nature of the of the tale, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it really does, um, and it's it's kind of funny because I'm uh, I'm one of those guys that thinks that that uh, that story is is kind of an odd word uh, because right. I never I never have a story going in right. to it. Uh, we're we're always playing to find out what what's going to happen mm. to to use. Uh, Vincent Baker's phrasing, right? Uh, you know, I I don't know if if you know something is going to happen to one of my big NPCs or or what's going on. I don't have an ending in mind, right? So so the story doesn't happen until you know. I I, I never have have a sense of, of you know this is good for the story or that's good for the story. Uh, right. The story is kind of whatever happens, right? Uh, so so those. Uh, you know, put it, putting some of that responsibility on the players, like that means that they're taking 
easily as much, if not more, authorship of the story uh, than than the GM. Right. So, so. Ch- changing gears um, a little bit here, what's the perfect number of people to roleplay? And, and obviously, uh, when you're playing online, there are you know, certain restrictions in terms of bandwidth and making sure that everybody you know is able to hear what's going on and so forth. But if you were playing face-to-face, what's your ideal number of people to play with? Uh, did, did you ask this already? Five. Five, five counting the, the GM. Oh, it was, I mean, like, in terms of there are certain technical limitations for playing um, online as opposed to face-to-face. Like, if you actually had a, a room full of people, um, human, or at least I find, are much better at picking out what individual people are saying. And if there are two or three conversations going on at the same time, it's easy enough to tune into one or tune another one out. But online, I find that whole experience much more difficult to to achieve. And uh, I would say that playing online, I would play with fewer people than uh, if I were playing face-to-face. Uh, actually, uh, I, I play with the, with the same, the same number, uh, right. both, both of the games, uh, that I have been in actually, uh, one that I recently played in had, had five players and then me as the GM. Right. Uh, but, but usually, uh, you know, five at the table is, is good. Although I find that, uh, with, with online games, you kind of have to, uh, uh, limit the time. Right. Uh, you know, there there I there tends to be less less crosstalk than there does at the table. Yes, yeah, that's um, that's the thing. Yeah, for sure, because you're the, uh, kind of the conduit during that and that sort of way. Because somebody will say something and everybody can hear. But whereas if you have um, somebody who's doing something, then you can have another two people who are having a conversation about what their characters are going to do when it comes to their turn. But you don't get that online. Right. Right. Uh, but but on the other hand, I also find that since since the focus tends to be a little bit higher when you're playing online, uh, the the time that you want to play uh, tends to drop off a little bit. Right. Uh, just because it's harder to maintain that that amount of focus, uh, right. really for anybody. Right. Well, that kind of leads into my next question, which is uh, how often do you role play and for how long? Um, I generally, uh, on average, play for. Uh, in in two games a week, uh, and for right around two to three hours a session. Right. Uh, in you know, my my Friday game, uh, like I said, is we we meet mostly for dinner and BSing. Right. Uh, and uh, but when we do play, it tends to be for about four hours. And right. four hours is what what I do for a for a, a you know live at the table game. Right, um, but yeah, yeah, about two hours for for my for my online games is right. is probably uh, a good average. And that's because there's no crosstalk. There's not much lead in time or lead out time, and uh, it's a very focused action, right? Uh, yeah, for for the most part. In in some cases, it's uh, it's actually scheduling. Uh, right. You know, people have to have to go to bed, and you're playing with people from from multiple time zones. Right, uh, which which has its own limitations, of course. Uh, but it's it's way easier to, to set aside two hours uh, than it is to set aside four, um, for sure. Yeah, and and I found that online games you can actually get a surprising amount done uh, in in two hours, right? Uh, for 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 the same reasons that, that we were just talking about, like the, the focus is just there, right? For sure. So. 
Should males play females? And you can take this either way, whereas like you're questioning whether it should be allowed or whether you think that in a more general sense, people should push themselves to inhabit different roles. Uh, I think so, if, if they want to. Uh, I think that people should play the character that, uh, that they're going to have fun with. Um, and if that happens to be a female, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I tend to not play female characters myself. Right, uh, and and part of that is me not wanting to to accidentally misrepresent. You know, to I I, I don't want to be a jerk about playing cross gender. Right. Uh, I think guys have a harder time with it than than women do. Right. Um, but that's you know that's probably a gross generalization. Uh, but but you know in my in my anecdotal experiences uh I, i've seen that it's probably easier for women to play male characters than it is for men to play women characters uh and not come across as being kind of a douche about it right well you've, uh, you've played nicely into my uh, into my next uh, question there which is uh because with your uh, lady wife being a a role player um one of the ideas that i sort of, that i've um floated previously is that Part of the reason why it is easier for women to uh, role-play men than men to role-play women is uh, partly because most GMs are actually uh, men. The the proportion of women to men uh, in role-playing and then the proportion of men that are GMs as opposed to those women which are role-players and also GMs, I think that that's even more skewed. Uh, like I, I've interviewed a couple of um, female GMs in the past, and I've sort of raised this idea where if you're going to play a female and you've got a male GM, then uh, if there's nobody standing by watching, there's no other women standing by watching, I mean, assuming that you're being grown up about it, you're not just playing it to, in the words of uh, Satine, be saucy and have sex, then um, you, know, you don't have to concern yourself quite with... with playing it politically correctly if you will but if you're playing with a female gm and you're playing a female uh i think that puts men more on the on the on the best behavior at being a female but i also want to do you think that if you had a female gm and you're playing a female you might get a more authentic experience of being a, a girl you know I, I i honestly don't know um i've never tried it uh i think it's it's entirely possible uh, but I, I think uh, I think that kind of pressure is going to uh, to to result in in a little bit of dysfunctional play. Uh, you know, it there's there's a value in treating uh, any gender in you know as, as far as characters go, uh, roughly the same. You know, it it doesn't matter that your your dragonborn fighter is a female. You know, she still has to you know, mark targets and, and do whatever. Sure. Uh, I think there's, there's plenty of games where, where, uh, you know, gender or sexuality may, may factor in more. Right. Um, but it doesn't have to, no. uh, but I, I, I mean, if you're, if you're playing cross gender, I, I, I think that there's, there's gotta be at least something, uh, about, uh, about that being important for the character uh, and and the experience of of being uh, that that gender has got to be you know a, a flag yeah you know, for for the GM so sure uh, yeah I th- I think uh, 
that that may be something worth experimenting with. Right. Uh, but yeah, I I I don't know, but I, I definitely think that the uh, you know from from the point of view of of a guy, uh, yeah, if I was if I was playing a female character and and it was a female GM, uh, I. I, I think that there would be a lot of added pressure, not only to, uh, you know, to be, to be, uh, I don't want to say faithful to the gender, but, but. Sure. You know, respectful, playing it non a caricature type fashion, right? Because Exactly. Uh, because I think with, with a guy, you, you might think that you're, you're not when you actually are. And because of, you know, biases or whatever, mm, you know, it's mm. going to get let go. Yeah. Uh, which it which it may not and it probably shouldn't be sure. let go not even probably it shouldn't be let go mm. uh but but yeah i think uh there 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 may be uh at least initially some uh some some awkwardness there that sure. that is going to uh, affect the dynamic of the game absolutely and, and so along those lines is a genuine catharsis available in role playing i think so um, I don't, I don't really buy into the, the, the whole idea of, of immersion. Uh, I don't think that there's any way that you can, uh, legitimately play, you know, one, one-to-one behind a, a character's eyes and, right. you know, like, like you would in a stage play. Uh, I actually, sure. I went, I went to theater school. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's, there's a huge difference between being, you know, method acting in, in terms of portraying a, a character uh, in that sense and playing a, a role-playing game. Right. Um, but, but I think that there's uh, role-playing is definitely valuable for uh, being able to examine, uh, you know, what would a, a character in this position do, like given all of these, these variables or, or not variables, but givens, you yeah. know? Sure. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think, uh, I think that there's there's the the same kind of catharsis you get from from uh, from from playing a video game, uh, sure. from from reading a book, from watching a movie. Sure, uh, you know that uh, because you're not experiencing what the what the other person is, but you're you're uh, kind of empathizing with them or sympathizing with them. Right, uh, you know you're going on this this journey with with another character, and uh, while while RPG characters don't exist outside of the player playing them. Uh, I think it gives gives people a really good way of of uh, you know examining situations and and being able to to, uh, to see what what they think they would do uh, or this right. person would do. Right, right. So being yours, you're a theater guy. Um, where does LARPing uh, start in terms of, with respect to role playing? Because I've heard some people say you're LARPing as soon as you stand up. But um, do you have any ideas about that? Um, not really. Uh, I think uh, I think it's less about whether you're standing up and more about uh, the the structure of the game that you're playing. Right. Um, you know, games that are are actually LARPs. Uh, you know they're they're played in a very different mode than than a tabletop role playing game. Sure, uh, you you can't you can't have the kind of uh, robust mechanics that you do uh, sitting at a table. Although uh, when I'm when I'm at a table, I tend to GM from my feet. Right, uh, 
<clears throat> so, uh, yeah, I, I think I think LARPing's kind of its own own little beast, uh, especially when you when you start, uh, you know, blurring the lines between uh, LARP and performance art or or theater. When you look at like some of the form stuff that that uh, are what is that? Is that Norwegian? I'm not sure, uh, but definitely like the the north northwestern European right. Uh, stuff where where you're kind of given scenes or it's a little more uh more like a, a structured improv right yeah 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 and so going back a little bit to what we we're talking about before um what does uh, Kristen think of your female npcs I, I don't think she has a problem with them uh she she has never brought it up to me uh i tend when i have female npcs they tend to be uh in uh, positions that men would hold, right? Uh, I think the the last major one that I had was was the uh, like commander of a, a, a forward uh, like a, a, an expeditionary army force, right? Uh, so you know, I, I I go out of my way to not present any any female characters that are are just there to be you know damsels in distress or or whatnot. Um, As a matter of course. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, is that a, is that an aspect of, um, or I don't want to say aspect cause that's got another meaning, but is that part of um, burning wheel like this, uh, that there are no clearly defined uh, gender roles or is that something that you've instituted yourself? Uh, no, that's just something that, that I do. The, the system itself actually, uh, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with, with the game, if you've ever read the books or whatnot. Uh, but there are, there are certain life paths in the game uh, that are only open to women. Um, right. And, and you know, not all of them are, I, I don't want to say that any of them are, are uh, you know, particularly like misogynistic or anything, but, sure. you know, there's, there's like the country wife. Right. Uh, life path or, right. or village wife or whatever it is right. uh, that, you know, of course, that's only open to women because uh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That and and the reason that it's there is is for uh, uh, verisimilitude in the the implied setting of of the game itself. Right. Of course. Um, there's uh, there's a similar one for for nobles, uh, which is young lady, which is actually one of the best life paths in the game. Right. Uh, uh, and and it also uh, one of the the questions for one of your stats is. Uh, have you given birth to a child? Right. Um, so, so of course, only a woman can answer that yes, yes or no. Right. Uh, so, you know, there are some definite, uh, you know, gender-related questions in that. Um, but on the on the flip side, uh, none of the non-women only life paths are. Uh, you know, restricted to men only. Right. right. So it, it kind of comes, comes out as women actually have slightly more options. Right. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that, that every woman sees that as a plus. Uh, sure. But you know, I'm, I'm perfectly satisfied with it. So. Right. If it's uh, broken, don't fix it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I guess the, the point is there's nothing precluding a player from playing a, a uh, female guard, guard captain, or a female knight, or uh, 
or anything like that. Right, for sure. Okay, so do you or should GMs fudge roles? This is assuming that there is actually a role to be made. Uh, no, uh, GMs should not. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, fudging roles is cheap. Right. Um, I'm pretty pretty much a stickler about it. it in every way that I possibly can. Uh, you know, if I'm playing at a table, I don't use a, a GM screen. I roll everything out in the open. Uh, I will go so far as to tell people, you know, before any dice hit the table, what will happen if they fail the roll. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think that the game is served from uh, from fudge, fudging dice. Right. Uh, and, and part of that is definitely coming from... Uh, you know the the like I said earlier, uh, where we're playing to find out what happens. Yes, absolutely, yeah, for sure. That's that's a necessity because you have to be able to accept um, bad roles, and 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 often interesting stories come out of those bad roles. But instead of it just being a uh, you know like this bad thing happens, it should be a complication of what you're ultimately trying to achieve. So you know that whole idea of um you know fudging roles in order to prevent something from happening is like you say it it sort of cuts the legs out from under the you know we're telling a story just to see what will what will happen right yeah yeah also uh there's you know uh, there's an argument that can be made that if if you're in a situation where you are you've gone to the dice uh for for whatever reason uh if it's possible that the results that the dice are going to produce are unacceptable for some reason, then you shouldn't be rolling the dice in the first place. Right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, if, if, if you're in, if you're playing a game where it's really easy to get, uh, you know, shot in the head randomly and killed, yes. uh, then, then either the situation you're in, uh, demands that you take that risk, you yeah. know, and, or you shouldn't be in that situation. You, you should give in to whatever uh, whatever's going to happen. And uh, because really, the, the the GM shouldn't just be saying, "Oh, if you if you do nothing, then you die." Uh, yeah, because that's that's not good play either. Yes. Uh, but but if you're at the point where you know this fight needs to happen or this this role needs to happen, uh, then then yeah. You, you you have to be willing to accept the consequences, uh, and that goes for the for the GM too. Like yeah, oh for sure. Yeah, yeah. If if your your big evil bad guy is is about to get one shotted by by the knight with a lucky roll, yeah, too bad. Yes. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean it's a great talking point. Remember that time when sort of situation, right? But and like Middle Earth um, role playing and uh, and role master, you know, like if you're going to, and they're not the only ones, but if you're going to live by the sword, you know, like everybody likes, you know, shooting the guy through the ear and removing all uh, all earwax, you know, that sort of that outcome. Then you have to be prepared to die by the sword as well, right? Like if you're going to. If you accept the fact that you can kill a monster with one blow, you have to accept the fact that your character is going to be killed by by one blow at all. Um, but, sorry, by one blow as well. But the sort of the reason I ask that that question is because in my one of the sort of first pieces of feedback I got is um, in my uh, well, I, let me backtrack a little bit. That idea is something that I've I've come to over time. Like the more familiar that I've become with with uh, role-playing games, the more I've been able to develop 
um, you know, a feeling for what's actually going on during the game, uh, but also how to turn all of those outcomes into something that's cool for the story. But if you were, you know, the the, the twelve or thirteen year old self, um, were you able to to do such a thing, or did you do you feel that that sort of idea um, comes from maturity and familiarity with the uh, with the rules and oh, I definitely, in general? I definitely think that that that's an idea that comes from maturity. I think, uh, you know, when you're a kid, uh, you, you see everything, you know, from, from the eyes of a child, right. uh, you know, and you know, a 12 year old is still pretty much, pretty much a child. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to, you, you can't get that bigger picture view that, that comes from, uh, from, a, you know, growing up, mm. uh, and it's, uh, it, I'm pretty sure that it's physiological and pop physiologically impossible for, for people that young to, to be able to do that. Right. Um, I, I, I think that there's, uh, there are games that will, will, uh, make that sort of attitude easier. Uh, mouse guard is definitely one of them where, uh, even if you if, if you fail a role, you still ultimately succeed at whatever you're, it is you're trying to do. There's right. just something else that happens, and and the rules kind of uh, give you a buffer for that. Uh, but it's it's so easy to get upset if you you know you you walk down the flight of stairs into the dungeon and the kobold jumps out from you know behind a, a statue and backstabs you and you yeah, that's right yeah, and your, ma- your magic user dies yeah the first yeah. yeah for sure and that's and that sort of doesn't serve anybody right that's the other that's sort of the the sharp edge of that um not fudging roles because I, I give some advice in in the book and it's really for people that are just studying and saying like you know make sure like your ultimate job as a gm is to make sure that everybody's having fun now as you get older and become more mature then the whole i sort of responsibility for the fun falls on everybody bringing in their a game to the table you know the characters are contributing the gm's character uh contributing as well and you create sort of this synthesis the synergy if you like of um of you know like of awesomeness because everybody is invested and they're all doing something cool but if you're like um Sixteen-year-old chap and or, or girl, and you've you've got yourself a book, and you've managed to finally convince three or four people to come and play your game, and you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, and one of them makes a magic user. It doesn't serve anybody. It certainly doesn't serve the hobby um, for the magic user to come out and for you to just jump out from behind them and then kill them, you know, with with the kobold. So that's the end of their game, right? That's the that's sort of the 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 tough side i guess of of not fudging dice rolls yeah yeah it it really is um and you know i've i've even seen seen adults adults do it um, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's horrible <laughs> well i mean i mean i people people get attached to things uh you know they they get attached to their character uh or or whatever um and uh, I mean, really, it's ninety nine percent of the time. Uh, it's it's that situation that I was just talking about. Like the dice never should have come up. Yes. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's you know there's there's downsides to everything. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't. I mean, you 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 don't fudge. You know your yardage in football. Not that I'm a big football fan, but. You know, you don't you you don't fudge your yardage in football. You no. you you don't fudge when the dude's out in baseball. 
Yeah, uh, no, for sure. Yeah, yeah, you don't fudge when you accidentally crit the the magic user. That's, oh yeah, for sure. That, that is the risk of playing. Uh, interestingly, uh, <laughs> having gone through some of the older uh, some some you know older RPGs lately, right? right. Uh, there's there's assumptions in the game that I think get lost. Uh, like that you are just going to take over one of the hirelings or uh, that when you die, you just roll up another character and bring them in. Right. Uh, that, that I think, uh, you know, when, when you look at the evolution of, uh, uh, especially D and D when it's, you know, first edition was, was just this brutal, like, hmm. you know, you're, you're not even, you don't even get experience or at least much of it for killing monsters. You get it for finding treasure. Yes. So, yeah. so, you know, so points out, outsmarting stuff is, you know, is, is part of the game. Second edition changed that, right. uh, but still had the, you know, roll everything in order uh, and deal with the character that you, that you rolled up. And then third edition was like, well, people kind of want to be able to play whatever they want to play. And then fourth edition, uh, they basically took all the teeth out of death. Like it's an inconvenience, and uh, so so all of those, uh, interestingly, have I I feel like have been uh, almost uh, you know adverse reactions to to letting the dice fall where where they are. Right. Uh, but then in in some of the the more you know the the newer game designs, uh, you know that. That those effects are mitigated by uh, making the the uh, you know the results of those mechanics more acceptable. Uh, absolutely, than, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's definitely that's the key, right? Like you want to make sure that every role is is meaningful, and while it's your responsibility for everybody to have have fun, don't look at a failure or a difficulty or, or some other condition that must be met for success to in some way be diminishing from people's fun, because it's it's what we were talking about before, where you're setting up this uh, this master villain's lair, and if you decide to put nothing in the way and you waltz it and grab the, the super weapon and take it to safety, then you've got no game and nothing interesting happens. You need those set you need all of that struggle to make the whole the whole journey worthwhile. But uh, at the same time, if your friends are playing for the first time, don't just kill them straight away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> keep let's keep them, <laughs> let's keep them in the hobby. Okay, so um, what's your best um, and or most inspiring role playing uh, film or television? It doesn't have to be about role playing, but you know, you watched it and went, "Man, I really love that," and I want to play a game that's like that, or I want to incorporate elements of that uh, TV show into um, my. Um, uh, burning wheel game uh deadwood yeah is it, it is uh I don't, I don't know if you've seen it uh don't tell me what happens <laughs> my wife uh, and i my wife and i just got the uh just got the series and we're going to go through and watch them all in, in one go i've been meaning to watch it for years but it started when i was in uh when i was in new zealand and Television's not the same there as it is here, or even the same there now um, as it was then, and there was no real way to know when anything was coming out, and and uh, so yeah, so I'm, I'm watching it now. But but do we go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I, I won't spoil anything anything for you, uh, but uh, the it has this really interesting juxtaposition of of uh, certain things about the show are really really beautiful. Uh, the the dialogue is all written in iambic pentameter. Not not that I run my games speaking in iambic pentameter because that would be ridiculous. Uh, 
unless you're playing a game that's actually, you know, reciting Shakespeare right. for some reason. Sure. Uh, but, you know, it, it has that, that, that richness of language. Uh, and somehow they managed to uh, make every other word a curse word. Right. In that. So you, you have the, the, the poetry of, of, you know, the language being spoken uh, contrasted with the harshness of what the actual words are. Right. Uh, you know, they, they, they've taken uh, something that, that is essentially like the American version of, of uh, you know, what I imagine the Arthurian legend was to, uh, you know, to British people, where it's not, this is what happened necessarily, you know, exactly true, but right. it's the romantic version of how things were right. back in the day. Right. Uh, and they've turned that on their head and made it, you know, it's, it's, you know, they portrayed Deadwood as this very, very dirty place. Right. Uh, you know, the fights are, are short and brutal. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's beautifully filmed. You, you see, you see uh, all kinds of just these gorgeous details in amidst all of this, this, this brutality and ugliness. And that is what I, uh, I always try and put into into my role playing games. Right. Uh, you know the the motivations of people aren't aren't you know good or evil so much as people are doing what they think they need to do. Right. Uh, and and uh, you know that that is kind of what what Deadwood is. You know what what the show is. Uh, and and yeah, that's it's it's always the first thing that I that I look to. Uh, when I'm when I'm thinking about you know how to present uh, role playing, right? Like painting your your word pictures, right? Like you having these m- images in your in your head and, and thinking about not necessarily the specific details, but the elements that go into making up the scene and and putting a lantern in the place of a street light or, or something like that. That's that's period accurate, but sort of keeping that same overall aesthetic at least as close as you can. You know, it's good to have those sort of touchstones um, in your own mind of the sort of mood you're trying to convey and what little aspects of that mood that you saw on, on Deadwood or whatever show it might happen to be for you that you can incorporate and hopefully add a little something else to, you, to your own descriptions, right? Yeah, exactly. So talking about these characters having their own motivations um, sort of plays into the next question, which is, um, who's your favorite villain and why? Oh, that is a tough one. I, I, I looked over these questions and this is the one that I struggled with a lot. Um, there are a lot I, of good villains. There are so many good villains, uh, and some characters that start out villains that wind up not being villains. I would right. have to, I would have to go with Al Swearengin, right? Uh, for a, again, from from Deadwood, uh, right. because he's presented in one way at the beginning of the series, right? Uh, and and as you go along, you uh, you kind of sympathize with him, although he never becomes. Uh, I don't want to say evil, but he's he's a very brutal person. Yes, uh, and, and and you know, like I said, I don't want to I don't want to spoil it. No, no, no. I, I think I know what what story you're going to tell. But for the benefit of the listeners, I think that probably. Um the, the character that you're describing is because although the sort of question starts out very specific, it goes to this general idea of, and to my mind, there are, I mean, and there are lots of different shades and, uh, and within this, but, um, there are four basic types of villains that, that I, that I, that I see. Uh, the first type of villain is the Hannibal Lecter type villain, which, um, 
sounds a little bit uh, like the, the chap you're describing currently, which is that there are certain aspects of their personality which you admire. So, for example, Hannibal Lecter, you admire how devilishly clever he is, how smart he is, how refined he is, how polite he is, but you're completely incapable of sympathizing with his ultimate goals or the means that he goes about achieving them. And then you've got a villain like, say, the Joker, who's really just a force of nature, and his goals are completely unknowable, and his method, you can't sympathize with, with any of his methods. He might just as well be, be an alien, but he's, he's interesting because he is alien. And then you've got a third type of villain, um, which is your Hans Gruber type character from from Die Hard, where you can totally sympathise with his goal, which is you know he wants to be rich so that he's got all the money to buy the things that he wants. I mean, who doesn't want that? Um, but you can't necessarily sympathise with his his methods. And then the last type of villain um, is for me somebody like Lex Luthor, um, who is only a bad guy because the story is told through Superman's eyes. If the story were told through um, Lex Luthor's eyes, it'd be a, and I forget who it was that said it now, but said it would be more like a Predator-type story. I mean, I know that the Superman, you know, theoretically does all this great stuff, but if you try to look at Superman through the prism of at least some portrayals of Lex Luthor, then he's actually, Lex Luthor is the good guy of his story, and there's not really any clear way to fault him. And, and, and all these villains... Uh, interesting in, in different ways because of their ambiguity. None of the none of the ones the vil, the villains that have come up that people um, really uh, gravitate towards are sort of like these moustache twirling. To use uh, Farrell's description from episode eight, none of them are sort of just moustache twirling type villains who have nothing redeemable about them, and their goals are you can't sympathise with with either. Uh, would, do you think that uh, your chap fits the Hannibal Lecter mold more, or is he more sort of a uh, more sort of a Hans Gruber type character? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to say uh, that, and that's kind of the reason that I that I like. Oh yeah, ambiguity. So much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the 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 tricky thing is that, uh, and and if you're watching <laughs> if you're watching this with your wife, you, you'll you'll see it. Uh, you know, you you have somebody who is not a nice person at all. Uh, he he does things that are that are horrible. Right. He does horrible things for very pr- pragmatic reasons. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this this guy is he's he he runs a saloon, uh, which is essentially a brothel. Right. You know, he doesn't treat prostitutes particularly well because you know, from his perspective, they're essentially his property. Right, his livestock. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, he he owns a whole bunch of land and, you know, will will, you know, cheat people out of uh, out of a deal if, if he thinks he needs to right. or or beat the snot out of somebody. Right. But on the other hand, uh, he's he's very aware of of how important everybody else is to his best interests. Right. And it's not so much that he will use them, but he's actually willing to uh, to to give in and and make some sacrifices you know to to uh maintain the greater good right so so you know he's he's a bad person uh he's he's definitely somewhat you know he's definitely villainous and you don't like him but he's understandable uh, yes yeah for so sure. so you know hans gruber is 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 fundamentally driven by his own greed 
Yes. Uh, yep. And, and uh, you know, Hannibal Lecter is fundamentally driven by his own alienness. Like, he is so far out of, of whack with the rest of society, even though he has very specific, you know, rules that he follows. Yes. You know, he is, yep. he is uh, you know, transhuman in his, mm-hmm. in his uh, identity. Uh, you know, Al Swearingen is is very human, and you can you can see what he's doing and and why he would do things the way he does. Uh, at the same time that you're cringing at the fact that he's you know mopping the blood up off of his his barroom floor. Right, right. He sounds a little bit like Nucky Thompson from Boardwalk Empire, at least as, as Nucky was to start with. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And it's and I think that um, yeah, I think that we can agree that it's you know is that ambiguity. If, if and one of the things that that I advocate in my book when you're uh, when you're writing your story is that f- in a lot of respects your plot is, your villain is your plot. You know, it's the things that the villain wants. That may just be the exactly what your players don't want or exactly what your players want, but in an adversarial fashion that's going to make your, your story interesting. So, you know, spending some time to really think about your villain and, and dressing them up nicely and think about at least some redeeming qualities because all of the, in my opinion at least, all of the great villains have some kind of redeeming quality, whether it's that you can totally sympathize with their goal, whether you can totally sympathize with certain aspects of their personality, or whether you can empathize with certain types of behaviors that they exhibit that uh, that make them interesting and make them worthwhile uh, adversaries right right so uh do you have any um dice superstitions i have zero dice superstitions uh i i, I play and, and fiddle with dice uh all the time but that's mostly because i need things to do with my hands right because uh, i fidget while i think right uh, but uh but yeah i'm i'm very, very firmly in the, in the, uh, you know, a six sided die will produce a dot, uh, a number between one and six. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, I have, I have none. I don't even need my dice to match. Right. Have you, have you experienced any fascinating, uh, dice superstitions? I've, I've, there's a lot of them. Like people are like, don't touch my dice or, uh, you know, I, I think, I think some of them are, are less about superstition and, and more about, uh, you know, aesthetics where, where people need, right. need all of their dice to look the same or, right. or whatever. Right. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's a couple I've heard of people like needing to, to roll out the bad luck or, or, Oh, this die has been, been rolling, uh, consistently well this session i think this will be my lucky die and i'm like there's a word for that and it's confirmation bias yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, it, it doesn't help that i am firmly in the uh in the skeptic camp when it comes to pretty much everything right uh so so of course i i tend to look at everything you know from that from that perspective right. uh so so yeah, I, I I have no dice superstitions, and I I I tend to uh, you know I'll admit it. I tend to look at dice superstitions and go, "That's kind of silly." But uh, I I generally don't say that to people because you know no, that'll just be between us, Sean. Nobody will know. Yeah, nobody nobody will ever hear this. I'm, I'm sorry if you have dice superstition and you ever play with me, uh, but but yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs> so, if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would it be? That doesn't mean that you get to play whatever game you want to play. I just mean, like, you literally, Sean, became a character in a particular setting. What uh, character would it be and in what setting? Uh, I would be a blank from Free Market. Uh, 
I free market station is is uh, dystopian for some people and utopian for others. Right, uh, and I am in that that second camp. Like that is. Uh, I, I see nothing wrong with, with engineering death out of people right. uh, or, or engineering in, uh, you know, not, not superior, uh, you know, genetics per se, you know, in the, in the eugenic sense right? Uh, where there's like some perceived, you know, optimal way people should be. Right. Uh, but, but uh, being able to, to, to uh, essentially be an, uh, you know, a, something that is designed to be fit for its environment, right? Uh, yeah, I I see nothing wrong with with living forever and having my all 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 of my basic needs met, right? Uh, and being really really good at whatever it is that I choose to do. Right. I don't think anybody could fault that, except perhaps. Do you think it would be lonely? Uh, well, not on free market station where there's eighty thousand other people that are in the exact same position. Uh, but <laughs> you could hate all of them. You, and, and eternity is a long time to get to hate everyone. Uh, that, that is true. <laughs> but on the plus side, the technology exists in that setting to to take memories away from people. Ah, uh, there you go. Oh, so, that sounds ideal. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there, yeah, you never know. You you might hate something for something that they never did, or that uh, you actually did, and they've just reimplanted that into your head, or or whatnot. Oh, but, you're getting but all it's all getting things. all Inception style now. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. But on the other hand, uh, also also a feature of that setting is that any time that you want to do something, you uh, you know you're you're relying on on your your social credit to be able to to uh, be allocated the resources for that. So uh, it's incumbent on you to to overcome uh, those those sorts of issues. If you hate somebody, you uh, you you may not like them, uh, but uh, but. But you certainly have to have to be able to deal with them right. in order to get the the social capital you need to do the thing that you want to do. Right. Okay. So, what's your role playing elevator pitch, including your go to example? Oh God, I don't know that I have one. Uh, it's usually something along the lines of, "Hey, do you like Thing X?" Uh, generally, Thing X being whatever happens to be popular. Right. Uh, so right now, I would walk up. You know, as somebody who showed any kind of interest at all, right. I'd be like, "Hey, you guys uh, watch Game of Thrones? Right. Uh, so, how would you how would you like to play something that's very much like that?" Uh, right. Yeah, that's yeah. a nice that's a nice uh, entry point for people. That that, that show is popular is uh, is quite you know quite lucky because it it does play to you know the the, the fundamental well not the fundamental I should say it's sort of like one of the cornerstones of gaming is the Dungeons and Dragons experience right and people for the most part are fairly familiar with that fancy setting and then with that whole Game of Thrones um, popularity you know that's really. You know, but but the nice thing about that is that because it's so character driven, you know, you can start to work in some of those more complex sort of role playing ideas. You know, that sort of um, interplay between the characters. Whereas perhaps, you know, like Conan the Barbarian, or I'm trying to think of another good example, and failing right now of of sword and sorcery type films didn't really emphasise that same sort of element of the game, which I think probably is where the best entertainment lies. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, th- I think that uh, that one of the things that like it's kind of interesting because the first thing that people do, uh, in my experience, when they when they uh, start drifting, uh, you know, traditional style games like D anD D to to suit their own own needs, is getting rid of like the combat stuff. Right. Uh, so so you know, getting people in, involved in in 
systems that uh, that kind of mechanize the non-combat uh, really really tends to help. Right. Um, uh, interestingly, a burning wheel isn't usually my my go to system for for new players. Right. Uh, I, I recognize the crunchiness, uh, so I, I tend to. Uh, uh, you know what? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take back some of the stuff I said. Uh, <laughs> the the if if not now that I think about it, if I was to to come to somebody who had never played a role playing game before, I would say, "Hey, uh, do you like Ghostbusters? Uh, how about The Office? Uh, check out this game called Inspectors." Right, um, and then I would play that. Uh, because a it's hilarious, yes, uh, and b it's very easy to to understand like the 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 cultural touchstones that it kind of hits right uh, are things that everybody pretty much everybody knows right, uh, and then I would probably start being like, hey, if you like this, why don't you try this other thing like right. Apocalypse World or right. Burning Wheel or something sure. else. Sure. Um, so yeah, uh, as far as examples of play, uh, I just make people play it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, if you possibly can for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if 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 you explain role playing games uh, and nobody seems interested, yes, uh, then then it's kind of a lost cause, right. To begin with, right. Uh, but but if you kind of, I, I found that that forcing it on people makes it enjoy it makes them enjoy it a whole lot more, right. <laughs> sure, <laughs> and it's enjoyable for you too to watch people squirm. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, for all the marbles, then totaling one hundred system plus GM plus players, you can allocate anywhere up to one hundred points for each, but the total must be a hundred. Uh, okay, so uh, this this is going to change depending on on how you want to define GM and player. Because sure. uh, <clears throat> if it's if if you define all players, including the GM, as one one unit. Uh, then I'm going to say 50-50. Right. Uh, if, if you're going to uh, separate those things out and make them uh, make them three separate things, it's going to be 33.33 infinite uh, for each one. Uh, I, I, I understand that the, the people that are like, any game can be good if you've got a good GM. Uh, I am firmly in this system matters camp. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the players are just as important as the GM, uh, and all of those things need the system to rest on. So it's you know the 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 perfect triumvirate right there. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean Hayworth. That's it for episode twenty three of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, Daniel at HazardGaming dot com. Numbered and signed copies of Victoria can be found at hazardgaming.com. If you click the Buy Victoria link, it'll take you to a page where you can purchase not only one of the numbered, signed, first print run copies of the book, but also you'll find there a link to the Lulu print-on-demand version. And if you're particularly observant and scroll all the way down the right-hand side till you're across from the field where you enter your address to purchase the PDF, you'll find a secret link which will take you to a page where you can purchase the PDF for just $6.99 as opposed to $9.99. You'll also find several other Victoria or Victorian-related resources, and for those you can pay what you like. In any case, next week's guest is Michelle McNeil. So until then... Keep talking the walk.